and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with conservationists, ecologists, wildlife filmmakers, and really anyone else who dedicates their lives to helping nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects, and worldwide environmental issues. So today, the Coffee Connection, which you can find out all about on my Instagram, Coffee with Conservationists, is a really exciting one. Today, I'm featuring a coffee from Origin, an independent company based in Cornwall and London. I reached out to them just last week to see if they'd be interested in sending me some coffee and coming on another episode of the podcast to talk about it. While they couldn't put anyone forward to speak to me, they did send me two bags of their incredible coffee. So listen to the end to find out who Origin are, why you should be supporting them, and which of the two coffees I'm highlighting today. This week I sat down with Tori Choi, intersectional climate activist, educator and mental health advocate. So I connected with Tori through Instagram and the Sale for Climate Action project, and it was great to sit down and talk about that, her work as a climate activist, the power of social media in creating change, her mental health advocacy, and of course, why your environmentalism must be intersectional. Hi Tori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'll start it off by getting to know you a bit. So could you tell us kind of a bit about yourself, how you first became involved in environmentalism and that whole movement? Yeah, sure. Um, Thank you for having me. I grew up in Hong Kong, and one of the things that I think really helped me develop a love for nature is, I guess, the polarising perspectives of what people think Hong Kong is. Like, it's a, you know, portrayed to be this really cosmopolitan metropolis of a city, and I actually grew up in the countryside, and I think I'd be really obsessed with the idea of showing people who came to visit Hong Kong or, you know, talking about Hong Kong with a fondness for the natural side of it. And so I spent a lot of time in nature growing up. And, you know, I started to realise that there's a reason why Hong Kong is known for being a city. And there are so many things that happen in the city which are not particularly environmentally friendly. So I started becoming more involved in certain uh, conservation initiatives specifically with regards to the shark finning trade that was something I remember being very very passionate about and also um, with regards to their waste problem because it's a city of seven to eight million people and we're smaller than some of the boroughs in London so you can imagine there's you know a shortage of developable developable space there but um, you know it's something that yeah it doesn't really get spoken about that much so I I became quite passionate about those issues and then it led on to studying biology at university and then learning more about the climate crisis and from there I guess I just started getting more involved with um, direct action and community-based initiatives and it's led to where I am today advocating for social justice and climate justice. One of the main reasons I know like who you are really is through social media, especially Instagram. Um, obviously, Instagram's grown hugely as a platform for activism, and especially with your platform in the last like I don't know two months or something, you've pretty much doubled your audience in size, um, which yeah. is really amazing. How important would you say? 
social media platforms like Instagram, like Twitter, are for um, for sort of not, yeah, I guess creating change or influencing change. Um, specifically, let's for, for the sake of theme, let's keep it to environmental change. But yeah, yeah I think that you know, social media is one of those things where people, especially, I think members of the older generation almost want to refuse that it actually has an impact on the way that we behave and the way that we communicate and I see social media as a tool and a tool of communication that has really really become the fore of like how we communicate in lockdown especially because as activists you know we're kind of a lot of us not everyone um are used to protesting in the streets and meeting up with their community groups and doing things which are quote-unquote tangible actions but social media has kind of risen during this time to be something that we use to communicate information to communicate ways that we can help to you know share petitions and links and you know things that we can learn about the environmental movement so for me it's it's really really important and I've definitely you know speaking from my own experience I definitely feel like I've learned a lot from Instagram especially um, especially from you know um, members of the global south as well a lot of climate activists do not get a lot of recognition uh, within you know the realms outside of Europe and I think it's really important that we have this connectivity online which allows people to start sharing their stories and their conversations and that's really influenced my activism and the way that I hold space for different voices and different perspectives as well yeah that's a really great answer because I think that with me it's a case of um I've been struggling to find my space and kind of get the um most out of social media and I know a lot of people who a lot of my peers in the uh, university course that I'm going into are struggling also to kind of find it as a digital platform or a digital portfolio for creative work or environmental activism and so I think a lot of people will be really interested to hear what you have to say about that. Um, one yeah. of the main things you've been talking a lot about on your Instagram, sorry, um, one of the main <laughs> things you've been talking a lot about on your Instagram is intersectional environmentalism. Obviously, um, recently I, I spoke with Isaias Hernandez, who's um, otherwise known as Queer Brown Vegan, who does a yeah. lot of that kind of work. And that was a really amazing chat a few weeks ago. Um, he obviously had a lot to say about that because that's pretty much what he does is educate people on, the, on uh, intersectional environmentalism. But I'm really interested to hear sort of what you have to say about it, um, what your take on it is and why you think it's important that all our environmental work should be intersectional yeah for sure i i also just want to say Isaias is amazing and i've been following him for a little while now and i absolutely adore what he does and he always speaks with such honesty and poignancy and we did a panel together a few um weeks ago and just listening to him speak is always so it's so on point and yeah he's he's actually a really big inspiration of mine as well and I, I kind of just want to focus on you know this idea of connectivity at the moment so much of what I've learned about intersectionality comes from people and real people's stories and I think that's so important and it made me realize a lot more about my own story you know I identify um as a woman but also I identify as a woman of color I think a lot of the time 
Uh, we often attribute people of colour to being those of the black community and brown community. I'm somebody that uh, falls into the realm of person of colour. I don't necessarily have a colour that people refer to me as, but my lived realities are something which have really informed the activism that I do and made me realise that, you know, as, for instance, as a feminist, I can't really talk about feminism from my perspective without integrating things like how I experience this world as a mixed woman and, and how those hardships kind of integrated. And so if we kind of extrapolate from that, it's really obvious that when people talk about their lived realities with regards to environmentalism, for instance, there are a lot more um, intersections and overlaps there. So when we talk about environmental racism for instance we notice that there are a lot of marginalized communities who are made up of people of color and they are deeply impacted by the climate crisis and environmental degradation as well even though they cause the least amount of damage to our world and if we keep focusing you know on communities that um aren't necessarily you know uh, perpetuating this demise, then we can start to realise that all of the injustices of the way that the climate crisis and environmental degradation have arisen are the same systems that subjugate marginalised people as well. Because, you know, marginalised communities don't just get there or arise for no reason whatsoever. They're, they're almost created out of the system that oppresses people, especially people of colour. And we see that even in environmental representation, obviously with the Black Lives Matter movement, that's improved a lot, but there's still so much more work to be done. Like we look at most environmental movements and the way that, you know, especially in the UK, for instance, we're talking about the zero waste movement or we're talking about climate change movement. They're all pioneered by white people, which, you know, it's not to say that people who are in this movement don't have a voice, but we also have to remember where these movements came from. Like, zero wasting was something that marginalised communities did before it became trendy in the West. You know, protesting against environmental degradation and subjugation was something that Indigenous people have been doing for so long before it became trendy. And so I think there's a little bit this, like, not necessarily bitterness, but this, I think, attitude that when there are climate strikers who don't have to fear for their safety and are tutored like the OG environmentalists, we need to be mindful that there are people who are literally risking their lives because their life depends on whether their environments are safe. Um, and so for me, talking about intersectionality is, is so important because for a lot of people, it means the difference between life and death. And if we don't champion intersectionality, we often forget the people who started these movements. We often forget how difficult it is for some people to practice being environmentally friendly because the system that we live in doesn't allow them to be that way. And, you know, there's so many facts and figures about different marginalised communities and their experiences with air pollution or being near waste disposal units and all of these different things. There's so much out there to prove it. Also, green spaces in the city that I live in, in Bristol, I'm really lucky to live in quite an affluent area. And the area that I live in, you know, I'm very, very lucky to have found the property that I live in because it is relatively cheap for the area that I'm in. Um, and I notice when I walk around, I see no people of colour here. And we also have the most um, green spaces in Bristol compared to some of the more industrial, quote-unquote, industrial areas in Bristol. Um, and so, you know, that in itself is rooted in privilege. 
And this is also, uh, I, I kind of want to add as well, this is not done by accident. This area that I live in was built on slave money and a lot of slave traders lived in this area that I live in and you know even the building I'm looking at as we're kind of speaking was made with slave money um so you know all of these systems come into play and what's also really really important is that some of the people Mm -hmm. that we choose to ignore or people from marginalized communities especially a lot of black indigenous and people of color hold a lot of the secrets to how we can manage our environments and how we can move forward. Um, You know, it's no surprise that indigenous people are kind of considered guardians of the earth and they hold some of the most biodiverse regions on this planet. And if we can learn from these people and learn how they choose to view their environments and view the world, perhaps we can make a greener, more um, sort of, you know, all-encompassing, wholesome world. And I also just want to say that, like, I think there's a common misconception as well that intersectional environmentalists are only people of colour. That's not necessarily the case. You can still champion intersectionality and as a white person or as a cis white male, etc. I think that, you know, intersectionality can be for everybody and should be for everybody. And it's just important to integrate this as a practice and almost like a lens of seeing the world. I kind of see intersectionality as like, a cool pair of sunglasses that you that you can put on you just have to consciously put in the effort to put them on and see the world in different lights yeah that's really important to to say and to touch on especially with the um the the things you were saying about sort of true conservationists and the um indigenous people because i think that i was incredibly lucky because my first sort of um exposure to environmental justice systems and environmental campaigning was through the work of organizations like Greenpeace in other countries, Survival International, the Indigenous Peoples um, campaigning against projects like the Dakota Access Pipeline. And so before the whole mass uh, youth movement in Europe took off, I knew all about the movements around the world um, so yeah. I was really lucky in that respect, but a lot of people just don't know how long and how hard um, Indigenous peoples around the world have been fighting for their rights and freedoms. And it's just been um, something that's really taught me a lot as well on top of my previous education was yeah. uh, volunteering briefly with you and the Sail for Climate Action team. Um, And that's taught me a huge amount because they're all amazing people. And obviously the Sail for Climate Action project, um, it could take up a a whole podcast episode on its own. And it it will. They are making one, uh, which I'm really excited to be involved with and see what they do with that. Um, But for now, just briefly, could you kind of condense that down? What is it uh, and how did you get involved with it, really? Sure. South Climate Action is kind of like I like our linking point, I think, George, because we both worked on it for a bit of time. And, you know, there's a lot to kind of say about how the project unfolded, especially with regards to coronavirus. And, mm. you know, I say tragically how it came to an end, but also I think it's a really not necessarily good, but like a really important time to take stock of the practice and take stock of the group and the people and make sure that they are you know, of their utmost um, happiness and and also putting their health and their priorities first, which is, yeah, what the project wanted to do. So 
Surf for Climate Action actually was born out of a project that I worked on last year called Sail to the Cop. So last year, um, I was sponsored to sail across the Atlantic Ocean with uh, a group of 35 other European uh, environmentalists and change makers. And, you know, I could talk for ages about that project in particular, the good points and the bad points. But I think one of the best things that kind of arose from it was one of my friends, Clara, had decided that, you know, it would be such a shame if we didn't utilize the boat to create a project with Latin American, Caribbean and indigenous voices and take them to the UN Climate Conference in Bonn, Germany. Mm. And I got involved kind of quite, I'd say, very, very early on. I'd say like the core team pretty much was put together in December when we were actually in Martinique working remotely um, on the COP25. And essentially, you know, I kind of stepped in saying, I'll help with communications, I'll help with logistics, I'll help with sponsorship. It was kind of all over the place at the time. And in the space of three months, we managed to put together a really amazing team of people and volunteers who wanted to help with the project and the whole point was to get everybody to the UN Climate Conference in Bonn, Germany to raise Latin American and Caribbean voices of the global south in the global north which is where a lot of power is held disproportionately so that's kind of how the project was envisioned but obviously since lockdown and the way that the coronavirus has prevented us from um, meeting together in Germany in June We've had to take a step back and really think about how we want to move forward. And the German government reached out and said that they wanted to work with us on a project. And admittedly, I'm kind of one foot in, one foot out of that project. It's it's largely pioneered by the German organization and the core team members of Self for Climate Action. Um, and also kind of just with juggling a lot of different things, I have to think realistically about my capacities and, and whatnot. There are only about four or five team members that are constantly working on it i'm dipping in and out a little bit um just kind of based on my capacities and the, the participants are feeding into it but it is one of those projects that is quite ambitious and thankfully we have the help of this german organization that clara is from um who founded itself for climate action she's also part of this yeah um german project called klima delegation so they're helping quite a lot which is really exciting so hopefully this will take place in October and that will hopefully pave the way for more projects with self for climate action and how it eventually intends to be rebranded yeah I mean I've been only haven't been for a couple of months but I've been speaking to some of the participants involved in the podcast as well um yeah. so, and they've all been so excited but also kind of a bit they're just a bit kind of unsure about where everything is going um as yeah. you said so i think they'll be it, they'll, it'd be good for them to um when they kind of get more involved and i think they're all very much still creating content and as you said just being involved really wherever they can but it is hard to do that from a digital perspective i mean just organizing one meeting not even just to record anything, just to one Zoom meeting, it's like across the time zones and there's like four or five different time zones and it's, mm. it's it gets a bit complicated after a while. Um, jumping onto a bit of a different subject, um, you've been very open and transparent about mental health on your social mm. media and generally. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know there's a lot of people 
especially in the last few years, who have been suffering from sort of eco-anxiety or mental health issues linked to climate change and environmental um, sort of destruction. You know, um, I I know how hard this can be because I've gone through some of those processes uh, fairly recently and I know it's, it's a big thing at the minute. A lot of people who are heavily invested in the climate movement um, really, yeah, can suffer and their their underlying mental health issues can sort of intersect with their work as an environmentalist. Um, could Could you talk a bit about your general mental health advocacy from an environmental perspective? Yeah, sure. So, um... I definitely feel like part of the reason why I'm so open about my mental health struggles is because I realise that a lot of people are in the same boat. And especially with regards to eco-anxiety or eco-rage or eco-depression, all of these things that kind of fall under the umbrella term of eco-anxiety. When I started speaking up about it, I realised that so many people were as anxious, if not some people more anxious than me about certain topics. Sometimes I'd be more, you know, worried about certain topics as well and just having this conversation and dialogue has been really therapeutic and it can often leave you feeling quite like frozen in the moment when you find out a lot of stuff about the climate crisis and it can leave you feeling quite anxious and quite depressed and often quite powerless and to actually sort of channel that negativity or those hard feelings into action can be something which is really difficult and I really feel like the first step to doing that is by talking about it and so I'm a really big advocate of being honest and just being honest about how the climate crisis impacts your mental health admittedly since I've been more open I don't feel my eco-anxiety to the same extent I'm definitely anxious about the future but I feel at least now I'm able to channel it into productivity and into action. And that kind of forms this really beautiful feedback loop of like just feeling, you know, more positive, able to do more actions and then feeling more positive because you're able to do actions and so on and so forth. Obviously, that doesn't detract at all from the severity of the climate crisis or the difficulty of some of the actions that you do. I still get tired. I still get worn down. But I definitely feel like it is a step in the right direction and I'm personally I know this sounds a bit strange but I'm actually kind of waiting for eco-anxiety to be recognized in the DSM which is you know a diagnostics and statistics manual about mental health conditions because currently we don't give a lot of credence and a lot of um, importance to it as a recognized mental health condition and it really is and you know when I think medical professionals as well start realising that this is a really big deal, then this will generate more conversations in society and hopefully more ways of moving forward and creating space for, you know, um, positive change. Yeah, I think that's all really important as, especially as a young person, as young people, because, um, I mean, I saw something that really struck a chord with me the other day, which was a tweet from... Uh, Tolly um, at Tolly Dolly Posh Um, and she said something about how it's like our generation uh, obviously she's 20 now I think so sort of my age our generation is having to their, their plans or any plans they've made for the future are routinely thrown into disarray 
by uh, in the UK at least by uh, corporation or government action that we can't that we feel like we haven't got any control over and I think a lot of that that feeling of powerlessness often will feed into um, any sort of anxiety or depression or anything you may be previously suffering from anyway um so yeah. i think it is really important to address that and to kind of um the fact that there's people out there like you on such a huge platform um being so open means that i think a lot of people will be able to feel better about it and will be able to talk more openly and you know that will obviously lead on to yeah, just generally feeling better and feeling more positive and, and like there can be things that they can do and like there can be positive actions that they can take to reduce the ways they're feeling. Completely. And one of the things that I kind of, you know, constantly do this back and forth with, and I've realised that it's part of the society that we live in telling us not to feel certain um feelings this is a huge thing that keeps getting peddled in our society that young people are snowflakes and that they overreact and all of Mm -hmm. these things and this narrative is is largely created by people who just want to continue perpetuating oppression and continuing with their way of life and one of the things that i've been wrestling with is when you know um this sort of thought creeps into my mind and i go oh you know I'm a young person, I should be blessed to be living in this society, which is better than it's ever been in terms of, you know, my rights as a as a woman and, you know, the conversations that we're having and it's becoming more progressive. But then I'm like, actually, things are getting worse at the same time and I'm kind of terrified about being a young woman in this society uh, where climate crisis is going to be pretty much all I ever think about. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm currently trying to dismiss how severe I find a lot of this. But part of that dismissal comes from, unfortunately, people telling us to, oh, get over it. And it's the same rhetoric that keeps getting peddled and pushed with regards to racism, with regards to sexism, with regards to mental health struggle. This society that we live in, um, the higher ups, as we call them, they love to just push and push and push this agenda that we, sh- we shouldn't be talking about this stuff and we should just get over it and we should stop overreacting. Um, and that's one of the things that I've been challenging more than ever before. Mm, yeah, I think it's well, it's it's pretty hard um, in this country to kind of really feel like you're making a difference. Um, there's there's so many um, it, just in day to day life. I think the probably the, the most recent example I can think of is working a Christmas temp job in a bookshop over Christmas, you get a lot of, um, obviously I was really happy to hear that the, uh, was the, was the author of the year was Greta Thunberg with her book of speeches. And so yeah. working in the, on the counter, you have to push the, the sales of that book, um, and try and get it up. And, and the reactions to my, mine and my colleagues kind of talking about any of this stuff, any of it could be climate change or climate justice, but then that could lead on to other conversations with customers in an incredibly stressful environment. Just made me see how predominantly, um, obviously the older generation and, uh, predominantly white people were just, just throwing up these brick walls and being like, um, yeah, we're just not going to listen to you. We don't agree with you we're not going to listen to you. And then they'd try and counter with all these 
points that obviously at work you're not allowed to talk about. So you're it, it's it's kind of a hard thing because you're you're so stuck in this. We're not allowed to have political express our political views at work because we're working for a big company. But it's also like we've been told to push quite a polarizing book in a lot of people's eyes, and yeah. so I think that's quite just in the general society, as you said, it is quite hard to feel like you're making change, like you're making a difference. Um, with that sort of regard, I've been, you, you are an activist, you um, attend protests and marches, and you've worked with Extinction Rebellion and groups like that, and you're, I know you'd agree that our government isn't the most, uh, that isn't the best in the world, especially yeah. when it comes to, um, commitments on climate what looking at kind of these the the huge rise in especially the youth movement that's happened in this country over the last two years how much of an impact would you say uh physical demonstrations and these these protests in in big cities and in big groups uh have on environmental and climate justice issues just just in this country yeah, that's a really good question. I'm, you know, it's really hard to quantify because I feel like, especially with the coronavirus pandemic kind of taking centre stage at the moment, I feel like a lot of environmental advocacy has fallen quite a lot in terms of like, oh, well, you know, it's a lot easier to forget about them because they're not on the streets. And also because we're focusing on the coronavirus, I feel like that's been like mm. so much of what the government has dedicated its time to but i know that the green party is really pushing for um what we call a green transition or you know essentially a just movement which focuses on as we recover from the coronavirus putting more money into green economies and helping workers who often don't necessarily have the same luxuries and privileges to move towards an environment where we are fostering renewable energies and more sustainable practices so that's really reassuring. And I do feel like so much of the conversation and so much of the awareness has come from these climate strikes. There are some tangible things that we can talk about, but they're not necessarily things that are that reflective of commitments to the environment. I feel like a lot of people keep referencing the fact that the UK and multiple cities around the world declared a climate emergency in response to some of the protests from XR. But that doesn't necessarily mean anything until we see action and until we see tangible changes that are being made. So the conversation is there, but maybe not necessarily the actions to the degree that we would want. And I think so much of this has become quite performative. A lot of the government is saying, oh, yeah, we'll take it seriously, but they don't actually. Um, and I don't know much about the way that our political system runs but if i do know one thing it's that a lot of politicians love to commit to empty promises so mm. i'm mindful of that um and i'm mindful that it might need more pushing and more sort of um meaning behind kind of like galvanizing these these words into actions yeah i think that's a really good point to focus on because i don't know it's kind of um, a lot of people, there'll be some people who will be very, very optimistic and say, yay, we did, you know, um, the UK declared a climate emergency. They've said they'll become completely carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, job done. 
great, dust off our hands, hang off our placards, we're good. And then there's others who will take the completely opposite view and just say everything that our current government says is never going to happen because obviously in some cases it does feel like that because they're talking about, you know, creating a a green recovery but then at the same time they're carrying on with their build, build, build campaign with like roads and their plans for major investment in detrimental projects like HS2 and, and those areas and to take them, you, you've kind of got to navigate on that spectrum between the two very polarized views. You've kind of you can't yeah. be too doomsaying, but you also can't be too just believing believe what they say because, as you said, a lot of politicians they love to make promises to get elected, um, and as we've seen in the past nature and and climate in this country is is never really has never really been on the forefront of anyone's agenda well except the green party of Mm, course um and that's something that yeah we kind of got to come to terms with for now because i think it's it's quite a difficult area to look at but we just have to think yeah positively and kind of i'm struggling for the words really because mostly because I've just been so consumed with all the negative stuff they've they've been doing over the last few days, um, that it is hard for me personally even to believe that we should be on the spectrum. I'm like, I've been having a lot of the more negative end thoughts. But mm-hmm. but yeah, it, it's important that we just take a level-headed approach to this and and look at every decision that they make and every promise that as you said, the higher ups make um, with, you know, look at it objectively and go, how likely is this? Uh, how likely is it for them to actually carry through on this promise? How much pushing are we going to have to do? When do we start planning? That kind of thing. Yeah, um, I completely agree with you. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because I think that, unfortunately, because our government is so terrible, the office <laughs> yeah. often relies on people who are not working in politics, who aren't getting paid to do this stuff to really push for change. And it's just like they... I know that one of the things that XR wanted to champion was um, a citizens' assembly. And, you know, I do believe that there's so much that needs to be done where we integrate people from society into our government and allow them to inform decisions. Because so much of the time, you just have all of these so-called leaders who don't really... Mm. I think... A little bit out of step and a little bit out of touch with most people in Britain. Like I just don't think that they're not. That a lot of them are not very personable. Um, I mean, just even looking at the way they hold themselves, it just you know. For instance, thinking about Boris Johnson, mm. he does not represent the values and the wants and the needs for progress in Britain. Um, and you would think at least that. You know, every country's desire is to progress sustainably, but I guess we're not all on the same page. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely agree with that. Just after talking, I've had um, how many is it now? Two, so two American citizens and a Canadian on the podcast, and talking to mm-hmm. them as North American residents about um, even on the even on Canada's side, talking about the. Uh, effects of the Trump administration on so many um, environmental projects and environmental policies that he's just 
bulldozed basically um it is really yeah it's really hard to stay positive but um you've got a really good viewpoint on it and i think we're gonna kind of leave it on that viewpoint but before we finish we're just gonna do a little quick fire round so this is something that i've been doing with all my guests it's kind of a just four questions So first off, what's your favourite animal? Arctic fox, hands down. Where's a place that you like to go and, if you get a chance, connect with nature, somewhere you kind of really feel at home in a green space? So, um, unfortunately, I'm going to have to give multiple answers for that. In Bristol, there's a beautiful, beautiful walk very near my house, which is an old cemetery. And the thing I love about old cemeteries is little animals, you know, dig little nooks and crannies in amongst the tombstones and... There's so many beautiful birds there and squirrels, and I know there are foxes there. Bet you anything there are hedgehogs. I think I just need to stay there long enough. And that's where I really go to decompress. At home in Hong Kong, I live in the countryside, and there's this really beautiful trail behind my house. And I'm always like, when I'm back, I'm always going there for a walk with the dogs. And oh, two more. I can't resist. Um, the other place that I go to, well, that I've been to, which I really, really adored, was Yosemite National Park. It's, mm. I think, probably my favourite place on Earth. It is stunning. It's beautiful. Um, and sitting in the meadows there in the heat of the summer was just really, really beautiful. Um, and then I was really fortunate enough to go to Svalbard. Um, was it last year or two years ago? Last year, yeah. And that's kind of why I love Arctic foxes. The environment there is stunning and just so remote and so um, barren in so many ways. And that was quite spooky, but wonderful at the same time. Do you have a conservation hero or an environmentalist hero? Oh my gosh, too many, too many to count. But I think, you know, I've kind of mentioned self-climate action before and I really have a lot of respect for the environmentalists and the activists who are part of self climate action. Um, I'm a huge, huge advocate for a lot of people that aren't necessarily in the social media eye as well. There are so many activists who are on the ground and doing amazing things, and a lot of the self climate action people are part of that. Um, and I've learned so much from them as well. So I would say them, and I think within the more sort of traditional like conservation media realm i've always really admired the work of christina mittermeier and um that's from like a photography perspective and i was so blessed to have had a call with her like three weeks ago she oh wow yeah she asked to have a call with me and asked me about my perspectives on intersectional environmentalism and asked to learn from me which was so weird um because i've just like always really admired christina mittermeier um So that is in terms of, like, media and photography. In terms of um, climate activists, I've always really admired Jamie Margolin. I know that, you know, she is kind of one of the OG, um, like, North American intersectional climate Mm. activists. She's always really looking for this, like, concept of decolonizing, and that's actually where I'd started learning more about decolonizing within the climate movement. So... I really respect Jamie and her work and also her advocacy as an LGBTQ rights person. Um, 
And then, oh my gosh, there's so many. I also really, really love um, one of my friends, Michaela Loach, is an amazing, amazing yeah. climate activist who really put intersectionality. And I've gotten to know Michaela through a personal perspective and also through like the work that she does. And I realized that it's quite amazing because there's so much overlap. Like everything she does comes from the heart and she's genuinely one of the nicest people I've ever met. And I'm really, really lucky to call her my friend. Um, and I'm always learning from her. So I'm really grateful. And yeah, that's kind of what I thought of <laughs> in the first few instances. No, that's great. I mean, to be honest, a lot of people on these questions do ramble, but actually I I probably won't cut any of that because those are really good answers. I think that with in terms of like learning from uh people and connecting with people like that, it's a whole you kind of it, it I don't know, when I first joined this sphere of like environmental environmentalism um like climate activism and got a social media account everything seemed so far out of reach like yeah. at that point for example i mean when i joined in december 2018 um you know it's people like you who had i don't know eight nine thousand followers or something and and here i am interviewing you and talking to you about comms for sale for climate action and it's that kind yeah. of thing as you said with um christina it's like you never thought that a, a hero like that would want to learn from you and I yeah. think that that's an, such a good thing about social media as a tool is that we can all kind of however big or small and whatever you're following it's all about connecting with different people and learning from yeah everyone and anyone you can really for sure and one more thing that I kind of want to like add to that is um Leah Thomas who is an amazing activist and she's actually somebody I want to reference as well and say that I admire a lot. She champions intersectional environmentalism. Mm, she did a yeah. and she wrote on her stories today that like we had this very brief conversation about how um sort of monetary value and being employed or whatever doesn't necessarily mean that you are worth more or less. Um there's so much to be said about especially young environmentalists and young people and people who are starting out who have so much passion and so much authority and knowledge on issues that often just get left behind because you know we see things from a perspective that people who are older and more successful might not necessarily do that and that's not to say that Christina hasn't championed that in her work but I think it is really important to you know if you're going to further your practice and, and be a better environmentalist or be more representative of different communities that you take on board different perspectives um and so yeah I think all of these things really come into play and I completely agree with you that like there's something so powerful about social and how it can give opportunity and give a space and platform for voices that aren't heard that often Mm, I definitely agree with that and I mean this has been this last question has been such a interesting chat in itself that I think we could almost forget that this was a quick fire round almost yeah. um but so uh last off how do you take your coffee I know that makes me quite boring, but I'm also a cappuccino person. Um, but here's a fun thing as well. I was never a coffee person until I did my master's. Um, I actually really hated coffee. And I identify, and it's so funny because I identify as um, what this psychologist calls a highly sensitive person. So 
I feel a lot with my emotions and I'm a very sensitive soul. But apparently, um, also sensitive people are really sensitive to caffeine. And growing up, I could never drink coffee. Like in my undergrad, I could never drink it because it always just used to give me terrible anxiety. So um, when I started being able to drink it, I was like, does this mean I'm less sensitive? Um, but no, yeah, I, I like to drink my coffee. I like it. Don't, don't berate me for saying this, but I like it quite weak and quite oat milky. Um, just because I know that if I have too much coffee, I'm, I literally get the shakes and I'm just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so yeah, that's usually how I have my coffee. So I think we'll be able to wrap it up there. But before we finish, I just want to ask where can people find you? Sort of what are your online handles, social media and any of those that are the projects you're involved with that you'd like to say? Yeah, sure. So I'm on Instagram mainly um, at Tori Choi underscore. I don't know why the, the underscore is there because honestly, the username's available, but Instagram won't let me take it without the underscore. So Tori Choi is spelled T O R I T S U I underscore. I'm on Twitter at Tori Choi and I'm on that occasionally, not so often. Um, and then we spoke about Sail for Climate Action, which is on Instagram at Sail for Climate Action. Great. Well, thanks so much again for being on the podcast. And I look forward to hopefully one day actually meeting you in person and <laughs> looking forward to seeing what amazing content you come up with next. Thanks, George. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Tori for taking the time to speak to me today. All the links to her social media will be in the description down below. So at the time of recording, which was actually way back at the start of July, Tori mentioned that the Sale for Climate Action project was getting a rebrand. That's now happened and you can find out all about them and the amazing participants involved on Instagram at Unite for Climate Action. So earlier on I said that today we're featuring one of two coffees that were kindly gifted to me by Origin. Origin sent me this coffee to try and today I'll be highlighting the San Fermin coffee from Colombia. All the details of this particular coffee will be of course over on our Instagram coffee with conservationists and in the description down below. Origin was a company I reached out to as they really impressed me especially by being a certified B Corporation. If you listen to episode 6, you'll know that B and the whole B Corporation really means a lot to me when choosing coffee, and when I see that B symbol, I know that I can trust the company in terms of sustainability, ethics, traceability, and accountability of where their products come from. You can find out more about all of Origin's dealings with B Corporation and their various different sustainable practices on their website which of course I'll also link below. Origins values in terms of all the things I just mentioned really align with mine from their roastery to their supply farms so I'm really excited to be given the chance to highlight these two coffees uh, one today and one in an upcoming episode. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts and a few more places so tune in on the 25th of September to hear episode 8, which will be with zoologist, conservationist and TV presenter Megan McCubbin. Thanks for listening, I've been your host George Steedman-Jones and this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast. Mm-hmm.